Welcome to Forward Talks, a podcast by Gumbuk on moving towards sustainability in our region and beyond. I'm Tatiana Antonelli. I know we're going through trying times right now, as many of our countries are putting in tough precautionary measures to contain the novel coronavirus. Many haven't been so lucky, so I urge all of you to stay safe, keep social distancing, wash your hands and sanitize as much as possible for the next couple of weeks. Later this week, we have a special episode with Tanzida Lam from Earth Matters, where we talk about how the coronavirus should give us cause to rethink the way we do business and some of the impacts. So we look forward to sharing that with you. March 22nd happens to be World Water Day. And so today we're joined by Adam Torrey from The Water Project, a nonprofit focused on reliable water projects around clean water and sanitation, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. Adam began his water journey nearly 20 years ago in the utility sector and then working with governments. He believes that even though people understand why there are limitations to using water, there are still issues from a behavioral point of view. We all say we value water, but when we, we take it for granted, we, we abuse it and we misuse it and we overuse it. And so if we can all change our behavior in small increments, that really makes a big difference. And, um, you know, the, the Water Project is the organization that I work with now. And we have been, for the last almost 15 years now, actually, um, bringing sustainable water solutions to communities around the world. We've worked in, uh, I think, over 12 countries and have focused on uh, solving the water crisis community by community, person by person. And to do that, we have a model where it's not just about bringing a technology or bringing you know uh, money to a place but actually bringing partnership and relationships where you you bring participation from the public you bring um, understanding and you gain knowledge and you build capacity and you find the right solution that's affordable um, and sustainable and then you implement that and monitor it so we're, we're a NGO, a non-governmental organization or a non-profit organization, which is based in the United States. And we now have a branch office in Dubai. And historically, we've been focused on where the, the water crisis has been most pronounced, which is sub-Saharan Africa. But as we look at climate trends and the areas where water scarcity and water stress will be most severe in the coming decades, we chose to expand our operation into North Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. And so that's one of the goals of this new branch office is to help us expand into those regions where water scarcity will be most severe in the coming decades. Now we know more about what the water project is and where it comes from, but could you give us a practical example of, of something you've done in a community, for example, in the sub-Saharan area? Uh, for us to understand better the practicalities of, of such projects. Yeah. Like I said, we really value partnerships. And so our solutions are about building up people as much as they are about building infrastructure. And we find that to be really the key or the secret to sustainability. 
um, because if you you install a technology or a, a well or a um, solution that that only is is like locked into a moment in time you don't really help to bring that community a solution that will last so what we do is when we come into a region for example in western kenya where there there are good um, rain supplies water supplies groundwater we look for the most appropriate solutions and we work with communities so we'll go and visit we have teams there that meet with communities, identify needs, and they'll look at what kinds of solutions would make the most sense for that community, inviting their participation, their, their voice into that. Then we find donors, oftentimes from the general public or from corporations. So how do you choose the project? Because I'm sure, you know, having an association or an organization like yours, um, I'm sure you receive a lot of requests. When we get um, requests for help, um, which do come in frequently, um, the thing that we try to do is engage that individual or community in a long-term partnership. And so we look at what our capacities are, we look at what the needs are, and we try to work towards those areas that are where people are most marginalized or most vulnerable, prioritizing access for them. And that means that we do need to, to do a fair amount of research and um, you know, investigation into what the problem is. Um, right now we have kind of a, a saturation model where we look at a region where we can really effectively and efficiently work and there are many water NGOs, as you can imagine, humanitarian organizations and charities that are doing work all across Africa, India, South America, and beyond. Um, but we've, we've um, currently expanded into um, four core countries in Africa. And, and in those countries, we have teams who help us identify those most important projects that um, we'll, we'll do over the course of a year. And as new requests come in, we, we rank those and then we essentially put them onto a, a, um, a list of future projects. And is, uh, is there any project here? Because I mean, being based in Dubai and, and uh, I would say the, in the UAE, there are many water projects going on. Is there any project specifically under your supervision and your guidance? Yeah. So as, as you know, the UAE is, is not considered a developing nation. Um, it's a young nation and is developing in many ways, but it's not developing in the sense that there's any charity projects happening on, on this soil. Um, and the government does a very good job of providing services, particularly water, uh, even to very rural parts of the country. However, there there was one uh, water protection initiative that we completed in 2019 and just finished actually last month. And I'm very happy to be part of that project. It was in a small rural village community called Wadi Shis, which is in the Emirate of Sharjah in the mountains. And I think many people have never maybe heard of it or been there before, but it's a lovely place. And the, the community there um, are, are quite lovely people. And what we did there was we came together with another partner organization to protect and preserve and rehabilitate a, a water spring that was coming from the, the mountain valley 
and used to irrigate the farms that were on the mountainside there. And so this is one of the only places in the Emirates that has a naturally flowing spring with year-round flow of water, actually. And so we were able to come together with the community, with the government, with, with a, a funding partner, and with the farmers who work on these farms, uh, which are mostly date, date palms um, and some other vegetables and fruits, um, to protect this um, water spring and the fellage channel, which is the kind of the ancient channel, water channel that brings the water into these farms. We're able to protect that, improve it, rehabilitate it, reduce water losses from it. And uh, we made a nice event last month to essentially an opening ceremony where the uh, Minister of Environment came to do a ribbon cutting ceremony. Um, in that place though, we also um, combined that pr protection project with a irrigation improvement project where we demonstrated that with modern irrigation techniques, they can save a lot of water. And so we installed a small irrigation system on some pilot farms or plots. And there we, we saved approximately 30% water. There was water efficiency found um, because in many cases, they're still um, irrigating the date palms with flood irrigation, which means they, they just run the water and they don't really measure how much water they have a, a general idea of how to do this from kind of historic um, traditional um, methods, but um, it wasn't based on the actual crop water needs. And so we had an agriculture expert come to support that initiative, but found that we saved approximately 30% of water. And the date palm, as you know, uh, is quite a water intensive plant, one of the, the highest um, in the world. And so, we believe that it's a good thing to install these kinds of irrigation systems all across the Emirates and, and anywhere where there's date, date palm cultivation, and also to move away from using the date palm in areas where perhaps other kinds of crops could be used for um, beautification. Some time ago, there was the, the ecological footprint report from the WWF on how countries were behaving and uh, they were also giving out some facts about water consumption and apparently the UAE was one of the highest per capita consumption around 550 liters of water per person per day. Um, can you help us relate this number to other realities in the world because maybe you know, we don't really understand what it means, 550 liters per day. Maybe we think it's normal. I would like you to put this in perspective for us. Yeah, I can try. It's, it's in a way, it's a really big number, um, 500 liters. Uh, and in a way, it's not a very big number. It really depends on how you think about it. 15 liters is you know, something you can picture in your mind just in front of you. You could see 15 one-liter bottles. Um, 500 liters, you know, you, you can't quite picture that, but you can picture 15 liters just by looking in front of you and seeing what's in front of you. That space would fill 15 liters. That's all you have for the whole day. And many times people have to go very far to collect that water. 
and carry it back. And even though 15 liters may not be that much when you're carrying it for five kilometers, it's quite heavy. So um, that's, of course, an extreme example of, of kind of the contrast or the um, difference in, in where we have great access to water, almost too much water, and take it for granted and overuse it and waste it, actually, to places where it's so precious and every drop counts, it means life and death. Um, but I think it's helpful for us to remember that there are parts of the world where people just don't have um, that much water. However, they can meaningfully survive on much less. And I know a number of European countries have um, very low consumption rates. Um, the U.S. is, is working towards um, goals in that way. Um, but uh, it really does need to be reduced. Uh, it's a matter of really national interest to get consumers uh, um, using less water. And of course, the agriculture sector, sector, which everywhere is the primary user of water, that we have efficient um, technologies that use water wisely. So just to give a few numbers, in Europe, I think the average um, consumption is around 250 liters per day. Um, in the refugee camps in Jordan or in um, Palestine, we're talking about 60 liters per day. But there are also the infamous zero water cities, such as uh, Cape Town, whereby they were actually about to run out of water completely. And so water has been rationed to the population at 50 liters per day, waiting for the rain. Now, this is not drinking water only. This is water that you need to irrigate your crops, to wash yourself, to cook, to drink. Um, so it's, it's really important to understand what this means. Um, what are the technologies today that could help us? I mean, here in the UAE, we faced uh, recently uh, lots of rain, and that was due to cloud seeding. Uh, which is something we're trying as a country, you know, to improve in order to also maybe re-establish re re the water table, which has gone down uh, tremendously. But also we have reservoirs now in Abu Dhabi, coming up also in Dubai to collect this rain. Yeah, well, there are several um, existing technologies and, and some emerging, like you just mentioned, with cloud seeding. And, and unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data and research on cloud seeding, and I know this is a subject that will will likely get more and more attention in the future. And as we continue to monitor climate trends and see um, more extreme weather events and look to ways to <coughs> manage and um, really take advantage of some of these trends. Um, back to a, 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 the, the issue of water consumption and um, thinking about water use, there's a concept called virtual water. You've, you've, I think, heard of before. And virtual water is something that is also important for, um, I think, people to become aware of increasingly that in the products that we use every day, they actually take water to produce those. And so just because I'm having a cup of tea, that's you know, a very small amount of water, um, 
to actually produce the tea and, and grow it and water it and then transport it and everything else that comes together with bringing <clears throat> something to um, a consumer. There's, there's water in all of that. That's called virtual water. It's in our clothes, it's in our cars, it's in our phones, it's everywhere. And uh, consumers can make smart choices the more they're, they're becoming aware of how much water. And one just quick example I'll say is for meat. And this is the one that becomes in some ways sensitive and perhaps um, rightfully so, but um, beef uses a lot of water uh, to grow um, beef and chicken, for example, uh, much less. And so that's one consumer choice that can be um, affected and changed. Um, but back to um, what technologies, besides awareness raising, like I was talking about, um, which is important for behavior change, we can also um, look to um, what I said at the beginning, which is demand management and supply management. So cloud seeding is one supply management technique to increase supply. So we manage the supply we have by both bringing more inputs and, and then we try to uh, reduce usage. And the UAE has um, some quite well-developed and sophisticated demand management plans in place in that they've begun implementing. And that includes um, uh, at the household level, things like a new technology that was just announced last week, which is just like when you, when you go to take a shower in the morning before you, you go to work, you, you need to get the right temperature because in the winter, especially it's a little bit, you know, difficult. And then in the heat of the summer, it's actually a little bit difficult to find that right, that sweet spot where you want to get your body in there. But they found a, a, a tool that can help uh, in just a short amount of time, two minutes, get the, the temperature that you're expecting. That way, when you turn on the water, you don't waste um, in many cases up to 50 liters um, before you even step in. So things like that, innovations like that, um, that if at scale, they are actually quite cost effective because they reduce the amount of water that needs to be produced, the energy, the treatment costs and so forth, um, as well as simple things like um, um, aerators, which are the small nozzle on the end of faucets, which reduce the amount of water that come through the tap. Those are very low cost, simple solutions that should be in all commercial buildings. Um, as far as um, uh, desalination and other supply uh, considerations in a place like here or in coastal communities, I think those technologies, we hope to see continued innovation and improvement in the um, R&D sector so that they become really affordable and sustainable and also uh, good long-term solutions to the environment and the oceans. What do you think about water from air? I see now a lot of new technologies um, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, there's a specific company now that is having a lot of success. Um, I believe it's called Zero Mass Water, whereby they install in villages in Africa, for example, these uh, solar panels on the roof that are connected to a device that will produce water from the humidity even even if we think that actually that climate is really hot and that there's no possibility of water it still produces water do you think this is really the future for rural areas and very arid areas around the world 
I think it's an excellent solution. And I was actually today with uh, the team from Zero Mass Water. Oh, really? Yeah, at a, a award ceremony where they were actually granted first prize, I believe, for the um, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum Global Water Award. Um, and this innovation, this technology is roof mounted. And they say they, their claim is that unlike um, other air to water technologies that we've heard of for many years, their claim is that it only requires about 10% humidity to provide a household sufficient quantity of water. I think in many cases it, it could work. The question still to me is about cost, about capacity building for those communities, about supply chain for the parts and materials needed and really about community acceptance of these technologies. And <clears throat> anywhere uh, our organization works, we're always thinking about those kinds of questions. And I'm not sure that it's the best one, the most affordable, the most appropriate in all cases, but it, it could be one for the future that helps solve the water crisis. I'm glad you spoke earlier about the virtual water. And uh, I think um, it's important for our listeners to to know that there is actually a website dedicated to this. It's uh, the Water Footprint uh, Network. So if you are curious uh, about what it means to, you know, cook a burger uh, or just what a slice of bread implies in terms of water, or as you said, tea, coffee, please go there. You will be able to to see these numbers and to understand uh, how much water was needed to produce your pair of jeans, your t-shirt. And if I can just add to this that the bottled water um, issue is is still an issue that needs um, to be talked about. And while- I'm so glad it's you saying this this time and not me. <laughs> you know, in, in the U.S., <clears throat> I was working on a campaign called Only Tap Water Delivers. It was part of American Water Works Association um, to, to promote the value of tap water, value of water, but specifically the tap water, which is under, um, you know, very high federal regulation laws and rules for quality and monitoring and um, under under the public right to know laws in the US, consumers have confidence and trust that they're getting access to the reports to show the water quality. And so they have um, everything in, at their disposal to know that the water coming out of their, their sink or their tap is, is good, clean, safe water. But there's a perception issue still that if any day it comes out and is perhaps a small color or odor, um, perhaps it's not safe. Whereas with bottled water, we can see it with our eyes that it looks clear and clean, but that doesn't mean that it's safe. And on top of that is the issue of the plastic. And that's a subject for, you know, other environmental, um, you know, considerations. But uh, in terms of the water quality, I'll just say that as a, you know, water scientist, um, bottled water is no safer than tap water. In fact, there have been studies that show it's, it's less. It's true. Apparently, you find uh, four times more bacteria in bottled water rather than tap water. What does safe and affordable drinking water mean um, in your experience? The Water Project really seeks to help 
unlock human potential. That's part of our mission. And we believe we can do that when we uh, work with communities to bring safe, reliable, affordable water solutions to them. For example, uh, in one community we worked in, um, there was a, a woman there who would spend much of her day just with one task of collecting water, enough water that she would then have to cook and clean for her family. And instead of uh, having potential to um, do other things with her time, she was spending hours either waiting for collecting water at, at um, a kiosk or a water spring or collecting it and then walking a long distance. And so when we came in to bring a solution closer to her, the, the community where she lived, she was then able to collect that water in a short amount of time with her children and they could go to school. They would have uh, the, that kind of health and nutri nutrition that made them strong and concentrating in classes. So it's a chance for education. She was able to use her extra time to start a small uh, poultry business, uh, raising chickens and selling the eggs and the meat and bringing some um, uh, money to, for her family. So it improved the economy, livelihoods. And so you see just with a simple thing like bringing improved water access, it helped health, nutrition, education, and livelihoods. And that's why we believe the power of, of uh, water solutions really helps to unlock human potential. And it's why uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goal number six is focused on really trying to, by 2030, um, bring that access to all people. Without forgetting about human empowerment, the fact that this woman was able you know, to do something on her own is, um, is beautiful and, and fundamental in raising children today. People, uh, I think, all over the world have, you know, there's something about water. You don't think about it until it's either not there, you turn the water on and it's like not working, or, um, you know, you see it in front of your face, like, and people want to give to it. They want to, you know, start a charity. There's so many like NGOs that are started for water. And unfortunately, many times the good intentions don't always lead to good results and impact. Um, that's a totally, that's a whole nother, uh, another <laughs> podcast we can do about, you know, what it means to run a charity or an NGO. And sometimes good intentions are not enough. Yeah. We can talk about this in the next. Um... That might be a nice panel or group <laughs> discussion with a few people. You can find more information about the organization by visiting thewaterproject.org and see how you can help. Thank you so much for listening in and we hope to share a lot more episodes with you over the next few weeks to keep you company as we fight this pandemic. You can connect with us on Instagram at Goombook and find all of our previous episodes if you'd like to catch up on them at goombook.com slash podcasts. Thank you.